Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. This will be the second episode in a series where I converse with classicists about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special episode, I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Fudo-Kennedy, Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Denison University in Granville, Ohio. Her primary teaching and research areas include the history of archaic and classical Greece, race and ethnicity in the ancient Mediterranean, and women, gender, and sexuality in antiquity. She is the author and editor of a number of books and articles, including Immigrant Women in Athens, The Rutledge Handbook of Identity and the Environment in the Classical and Medieval Worlds, Race and Ethnicity in the Classical World, an Anthology of Sources, and most recently, Brill's Companion to the Reception of Aeschylus. She is currently working on the reception of ancient theories of race and ethnicity in the early Smithsonian, on the way inheritance and property laws reflect Athenian understanding of ethnic identity, and a new book project on ancient theories on race and ethnicity and their contemporary complications. In the first hour of our conversation, Dr. Kennedy and I have a lively discussion about race, ethnicity, immigration, and multiculturalism in the ancient Mediterranean. Along the way, we point out many of the misconceptions that there are on these topics. And in the second hour, we discuss how these misconceptions were shaped by early modern European and American political thought. In doing so, we discuss a course that Dr. Kennedy is currently teaching called Ancient Art, Modern Politics which examines art and architecture in ancient Greece and Rome and the history of its appropriation by modern fascist governments and nationalist and white supremacist movements. Along the way, we talk about the theories of German art historian Johann Winkelmann, particularly his fetishization of white marble statues, the use of classical forms at world's fairs to explicitly yoke antiquity to support white supremacy, Mussolini's reconstruction of Rome and his use of the ancient Roman past, in support of fascist ideology, Hitler's fascination with ancient Greece, and his white European-centric reconstruction of history that has been erroneously perpetuated, which leads us into a digression about the impact that classicists can have on the narrative by perpetuating racist and false versions of Greek history contrary to the evidence. And finally, the co-option of classical sculpture and modern white supremacist groups. There's quite a bit in this episode, and like reading Herodotus, Our conversation had many digressions, but we always found our way back to the original question. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Fudo-Kennedy. All right, so today I am joined with Dr. Rebecca Fudo-Kennedy, professor of classics at Denison University and the director of the Denison Museum. Rebecca, thank you for joining me. So I've recently did an episode on slaves and foreigners in ancient Greece, but I felt that we could elaborate more since I'm not the expert on said topics and I brought on Rebecca to provide more information and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So I want to start out with laying the basics. So what is it that we mean when we say race and ethnicity in general and in the ancient world and were these labels anything that the ancients would have understood themselves? So I'll start with talking a little bit about what race and ethnicity are. The problem is, is that we're not really clear about what the words are. They're really abstracted. And we're often more clear on what we think they're not. 
The big thing on race, obviously, is that race was considered in the 19th century and the early 20th century to be a biological reality for humans, that there was something about us that was in there, sort of 0.1% of the human genome where people differ from each other, that this somehow signaled that there would be an actual classificatory difference, a category of actual difference that we all inhabited if we had different skin color or different you know, nose shapes or different They'd love to measure skulls, cranial measurements. Now, when we talk about race, though, what we recognize is that it isn't an actual category that is biologically distinctive. The biological idea of race, this concept of scientific race, is actually something that is constructed socially. This is what they mean when they say that race is a social construct. Um, it's not, quote unquote, real. It is real because it has real impacts on real people. But it isn't biologically embedded in us. Mm -hmm. It's not an actual physiological difference. It's a social political distinction. So the Greeks, for example, differentiate it between skin tone amongst other Greeks no, or amongst no. other peoples? No. So this is where the problem with ethnicity comes in. So ethnicity, as far as I've been able to figure out, didn't exist as a word that we would even use until Weber. And I think it was 1905, 1908, something like this. Elaborate on Weber. Oh, yeah. So Weber was a German sociologist, and he introduced the concept of ethnicity as something that would be distinctive from race to talk about how groups identified themselves through language and culture and sometimes descent. And race was something that is often used. It was a biological distinction that would be embedded in geography in many ways. So these are the two terms that we still use that we're still not really clear what they are. And what happened is race was the only term that was popularly used until World War II. After World War II, people saw the sort of impact of deep institutional racism, anti-Semitism, and race science and eugenics. And UNESCO put out a statement on race in 1950 in which they said, race isn't real. We shouldn't talk about race. And they suggested if we want to talk about human variation, cultural variation, we talk about ethnicity. So from that point on, people started using ethnicity, but oftentimes it was just ethnicity was used in place of the word race, but they were still talking about this biological thing. So we haven't actually gotten to the point yet where the distinctions of them are clear because scholarship and classics has almost exclusively since the 1960s, 70s talked about only ethnicity, but oftentimes scholars are using it as if it is race. So when we talk about it in the ancient world, we're trying to figure out the different ways that the ancients identified themselves. And a lot of the identifying factors that they use are similar to what we would call race and ethnicity in that they can be descent-based, so genealogy. Mm -hmm. They can be geographic. They can be cultural, linguistic. So those are the various sort of ways. The issue with geographic is also, though, the one that comes closest to race is this idea of environmental determinism and climatic determinism that was a popular theory amongst both the Greeks and the Romans that argued that where you were located geographically and what climate and geographic zone you were in would dictate your physiognomy, so your physical appearance, and your character, your cultural character. And it didn't do it at the individual level. It did it at the level of culture. So that's probably the closest thing in antiquity mm -hmm. to what we would call race. But whether we should use the word race when talking about antiquity is still a hotly debated topic. People don't debate ethnicity, even though ethnicity is a fake thing too. 
that doesn't actually exist in the ancient world. <laughs> so, Well, that's a good segue to my next question. So ethnicity comes from the, the Greek, Greek word, word ethnos. ethnos. We've talked about this a little bit in the podcast. That's essentially tribal non-polis peoples. How did that become what we consider ethnicity now from a political sense or non-political sense, I guess, in the case of the Greeks to a different types of people? Yeah. So ethnos became ethnicity in the same way that lots of things Mm -hmm. come into the modern world. It's somebody who knew Greek and Latin decided I'm going to use this word because it might be close. So the problem is, is right, it might be, right? We have two Greek words that are the predominant words. One is ethnos. The other one is genos. They overlap in usage and they aren't just for things that are non-polis affiliation. When someone puts the polis they come from on their tombstone, it's an ethnos. That's their ethnos is the polis. When someone talks about their genos, they could in fact be just talking about their house, not a larger descent group. Ethnos can also be a larger group of people that have imaginary kinship, but not real kinship. So in that case, right, Egyptians and Persians and Greeks are all related and could share an ethnos because they have shared ancestors, mythically speaking. Mm -hmm. So it became this because we needed a word to describe something that we modern people were interested and obsessed with. Mm -hmm. And that was this idea of differentiating human beings based on physical appearance and cultural difference under the context of colonialism and imperialism predominantly. And so as any good classically educated people would do, they find a good Greek word, right? Because this is what you do. You learn this from Aristotle. And if you look at how we came to classify humans, it's basically following the classification patterns that were used to apply to animals and plants. And so you classify humans the same way. And so you do the same thing you do with plants and animals. You borrow Greek words and turn them into modern words that fit what you think close enough to what you want it to be. So there's not actually a direct connection between what we call ethnicity today and the Greek word ethnos, other than it could in some of its context be used to talk about people who share a descent group, maybe a language, potentially a culture. But, you know, people from Byzantium, for example, there are tombstones that we have are bilingual. So what was the language that was binding them if the people who live in the place and all identify as from Byzantium in the 5th, 6th century BC speak Phoenician or Greek? right? So it's an artificial political ethnos and not necessarily one that is cultural or linguistic. So it's in a sense how, I guess, if you go to Southern California or Texas today, statistics, I don't know exactly, but like a large majority of people can speak both Spanish and English. Um, And and I'm from San Diego and a large portion of the people I went to high school with spoke Vietnamese and Chinese and Tagalog, (laughs) right? So I was in a predominantly Asian part of Southern California. So you share in this dynamic of we all went to the same high school together. We all participated in the same environments and the same sports and lived in the same lifestyle, but we didn't all speak the same languages. So you mentioned genos. or Genos. Uh, genos. Sorry. My, my <laughs> Greek is rough. You mentioned genos and it's where we get words like genealogy. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've covered this a lot in the podcast too. The Greeks really love their genealogies. They love they, their genealogies. They love to go back to some ancestor who established some custom or city and proclaimed that as the law. And then they also love to trace themselves back to a mythological hero. <laughs> um, and they're not the only ones, yeah. right? The Achaemenid Persians did this. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much anybody we find in the ancient world, you get these long lists of genealogies, whether they're Egyptian or Persian or whatnot. 
They're fascinating to read. Everybody was connected to Heracles. He was getting busy. <laughs> they did that in order to claim some sort of special privileges. Was that just privileges amongst the Greeks and Romans, or was that their privileges amongst the people around them as well? Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, you brought up the issue of Heracles. We have myths of Heracles having children with people all over the ancient world. So Scythia, mm-hmm. right? India. <laughs> Heracles got around. Scythia was a kidna, right? If I remember. <sighs> well, it's not necessarily a kidna. It's a partially snake-like figure. There's more than one, right? <laughs> Erechtheus is also partially snaky if they're sort of autochthonous creatures. But yeah, so he had a partially snake partner up in Scythia. And some of these stories, like with the myth of the return of the sons of Heracles and the foundation of Sparta, are conquest narratives. But some of them are really just imaginary fantasies about the edges of the world and what happens out in the edges of the world. And so there isn't necessarily a claim when you have Heracles going around that, oh, the Scythians, they're also Greek, (laughs) (laughs) right? And a Greek going up to Scythia, of course, and we should say Scythia is not what they called themselves, Mm -hmm. but what the Greeks called them. But a Greek going up to Scythia, say, you know, somebody who claims descent from Heracles in Athens goes to Scythia is like, hey, I'm a son of Heracles too, there's no, <laughs> there's no cachet there, no cash there, no privileges that would be enacted. And in fact, it's hard to say if claiming descent from these famous heroes after a certain time period in the Greek world got them any special privileges either, because they were already rich mm-hmm. and they were already elite by the time you get into the fifth century and the sixth century. So the descent in many ways is more performative. And I think people recognize that then it was actually something that was real and tangible. Mm -hmm. If you have the money and you have the status already, you don't need the descent, unless it's for a priesthood. Or it's symbolic. It's symbolic. Symbolic in the sense of like Athens with Theseus during the classical period. It was there. But that's the whole city claiming descent, right? And that's one of the things that's interesting about Athens is that what you would consider aristocratic genealogical privileges Mm -hmm in some ways, is transferred to anybody who's born Athenian by virtue of their autochthonous birth and their closed citizenship circle. This idea that if you can claim to be a citizen of Athens, then you had proven yourself to be a son of Theseus. Mm -hmm. So there you have a sort of taking the aristocratic privilege model and transporting it to an entire polis, which is in some ways similar to what you have in Sparta, right? All Mm -hmm. Spartiates can claim that privilege. From Heracles. Yeah. So- Ish, right? I mean, there's the two kings who are the direct, supposedly direct descendants. I think we would like to think that these genealogies are not messy and that they actually are more meaningful than they are in part because I think we think that the ancient Greeks especially were far more naive than we are. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I was once asked in a talk by Paul Cartledge if I thought that Athenians believed their oaths when they went into the courts, right? Did their oaths not have meaning? And I said, well, we know that they lied in court because sometimes we have dual speeches Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they both can't be not lying. One of them is lying and they're doing it under oath. So this idea that the Greeks suddenly like magically really think the gods were going to strike them with lightning if they didn't fulfill their oath. I think that's crazy. Did they actually think they were descended from, you know, Achilles or did they actually think they were descended from Heracles? Some did, but some knew it was really just and means to an end. You have the famous ridicule by Xenophanes too that comes to mind where you get some authors who are just lambast these traditional views, which could possibly be a minority or it might even be in the majority. We have no way of really knowing. We have knowing. no way of knowing. Yeah. Our sources are all skewed towards the elite classes, particularly in Greece, but 
amongst the Athenians in particular, or if you know, you look at Pindar's odes, right? These are all elite texts and they're a small portion of the population, and they're the ones that have the vested interest in maintaining these genealogical myths. Mm-hmm. Right. And how much of that then connects, right? Because these are individual genealogies. How do these then transfer to the level of a polis, or in the case of the Romans, to the sort of Roman people? How do you translate? And I think this is what happens is that you have these families who have claimed these long lines of descent and that technique of claiming descent back to these individuals as a way of gaining privilege and status within a location. They transfer those models to the whole polis or to the people. So we have these big national, I use national very loosely because nationalism doesn't exist in the ancient world, but sort of foundation myths for whole peoples, Mm -hmm. right? Because ethnography is a later phenomenon. It's a 5th century, maybe late 6th century, but definitely 5th century phenomenon versus genealogies of rich people. Yeah, the Greeks and the Athenians and Spartans in particular are, and others might not have Thebans. used yeah, yeah, <laughs> They might have not have used genealogies per se to differentiate themselves from other quote-unquote races or ethnicities, but they were aware that there were certain people that were different than them. They're at least the sources well, I would say the Athenians used genealogy very strategically oh. to distinguish themselves from other peoples. Their myth of autochthony, they may not have believed that it was real, but it was very real in a political sense. They mm-hmm. used it politically to differentiate themselves from even other Greeks, right? But it was other, It's from yeah, everybody. It's everyone. Because I think the thing we have to always remember, we say Greeks, they didn't say Greeks, Mm-mm. right? It, you're, you're an Athenian. <laughs> First off, yes, yeah. Greek is a Roman word, but... Yeah. How hard does Herodotus have to work to get them to all say, hey, we're Hellenes? He has to work really hard and it still doesn't work. And then Isocrates tries to get it and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So finally he says, hey, Philip of Macedon, you can be a Hellene and you can lead us all as Hellenes against the Persian menace. They didn't see themselves as a unified – that idea of Hellene or Greek is a distant relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not one that necessarily impacted their everyday life. It's not the identity that they wore in most instances. Yeah, and they only came together – when they had to. When they had to. And then they immediately dissolved. <laughs> and they didn't – and not all of them came yeah. together, right? It's like 70 poles came together in out the of, Persian Wars out of like 400 and something. Yeah, it was 13%-ish, you know, ridic- yeah. so something it's, like that. This idea that there was a Greek versus everybody else mentality is really projecting mm-hmm. something onto them that doesn't exist. So the Greek against this quote-unquote other is more of a the select sources that we have mentality. But it's not even the select sources. It's a selection of the sources that Mm -hmm. we have. So, I mean, the person who really does this is Isocrates, Mm -hmm. is one of the earliest. I mean, we have – people often point to Aeschylus as Persians. He's not doing it in a demonizing way. And the play seems to be trying to talk about Greeks as the unit that fought against the Persian War. Mm -hmm. But it's not demonizing the Persians writ large. It's demonizing a guy named Xerxes. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, it's not us versus the Persians. There's sympathy for the Persians built into that play. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Herodotus. Obviously, it's not Greeks versus Persians. He's not called the uh, lover of barbarians, the Philobarbaros for nothing. But when you get to Isocrates, and I think this is a product of the Peloponnesian War. So during the Peloponnesian War, of course, the, the different Greek cities are hammering away at each other. And Persia is in the background manipulating the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's especially after 412, we've got the Persians promising financing <laughs> to both sides at different times and moving back and forth. And I think the real rise in anti-Persian sentiment is a result, one, of the actions of the Persians during the Peloponnesian War to the fall of the Peloponnesian War when Sparta won, but Sparta won by giving back the Ionian Greeks mm-hmm. to Persia. 
They're right? just turning their backs on just us. Just turning. They're going to fight for their autonomy, and then they're going to surrender them to Persia. Um, and that sort of animosity was bound up with mm-hmm. Sparta as well as Persia. But that's where we see the major animosity really rise. And it's Isocrates. He's the one who starts giving these speeches about how horrible Persians are. Greeks, let's stop fighting each other and let's fight the real enemy. Right. It's sort of these one of like, remember who the real enemy is mm-hmm. moments. Right. Because we have the post Peloponnesian War that ends in the King's Peace in 387, I think it is off the top of my head. Yeah. That's a peace dictated by the Persian king. Right. You know, this is where the animosity comes from. Socrates starts giving these speeches less than a decade later. So I think what we have is we have certain speeches that serve modern purposes that exist. They get picked up and that's the rhetoric that gets elevated. And then that rhetoric of strict anti-Persianist gets read back into earlier sources. So would these speeches then would have been influenced on, say, Aristotle? Or uh, absolutely, right? Been, yeah. I mean, uh, Socrates is someone who is erased from the history of philosophy, political theory, and rhetoric in a way that is really dangerous in some ways because he's working at the same time and giving these speeches and promoting Philip of Macedon later <laughs> while Plato and Aristotle are in Athens, while Aristotle's in Athens, while Aristotle's both in Athens and Macedon, <laughs> right? There are connections there that people ignore at their own peril because it's going to be Aristotle, of course, who, who sort of creates the systematic arguments for the differences between Greeks and everybody else. Yeah. And it, it becomes by that point as well that as we talked about in the episode on uh, slavery, that Aristotle makes arguments that the other people are the ones who not deserve to be slaves, but... Uh, it's, it's it's in their nature. Yeah. There are some people, yes, by nature who are meant to be slaves, certain types of people. And mm-hmm. you get that viewpoint. Oh, just 150 years earlier, there was still Greek... Uh, that slavery. Maybe, yeah. maybe 200 years but, earlier. But, well, you know, less than that because mm-hmm. we have Sparta with the Helots. Oh, well, yeah. That's, <laughs> That's, right, the Messinians yeah. are Greeks, and, well, and they this don't is, consider them Greeks. <laughs> but, but the Spartans didn't. But clearly, other Greeks did because maybe. we have other Greeks working on mm-hmm. behalf of the Messinians, giving them refuge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up in the mountains mm-hmm. of of Arcadia and other places. And then Messenia, of course, comes back with a vengeance as a city as Sparta itself fades into nothing. And you know, if you go over there today, Messenia has more powerful remains. Right, the old thing that. If you look at a city, you won't be able to tell how powerful it is by the means. Sparta's like rubble heap dirt piles. And most of what we have of the archaeology of Sparta today is Roman period, mm-hmm. where when Sparta became, you know, Disney Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Romans really loved the Spartans, especially their uh, the, oh, yeah, yeah. The Artemis yeah. Orthea, where they would yep. beat each other and the Romans build which it up is, so they could it, go visit and watch it. as Which was of, totally performative yeah. um, thing, right? Performing Spartanness as opposed mm-hmm. to actually whether it had anything to do with how Sparta really was mm-hmm. back in the day. So these ideas of Greeks versus others, I think, are really overblown. We're talking about the Greeks themselves. It was really useful rhetoric, though, for Philip of Macedon, one, to make himself Greek because his Greekness is always suspect, and to to unite as many polis as they could to go into this endeavor against the Persian Empire. But in terms of the classical rhetoric, I think we need to be really concerned that when we talk about, and here's where people want to use the language of ethnicity more mm-hmm. than race, is that we're really talking about intra-Greek differentiation. They're differentiating amongst themselves more than anything else. So what we have are a lot of sources, particularly Athenians, about other Greek Mm -hmm. people. Would the 
and this might not be something that could be answered, but yeah. would the other Greeks have felt the same way? Um, so, like, we have Herodotus and his views on the people in the edges, and then we have uh, Aristotle talks about them. Would, say, the Thebans have thought that these people on the edges were as different? Is that a Greek view, or is that just a upper-class Athenian view? Well, I mean, we have the Hippocratic corpus, which mm-hmm. differentiates these people on the edges of the world. And obviously we have Herodotus. We have Homer actually differentiates people on the edges of the world. So I think it's not just a Greek phenomenon. I mean, the, the Persians do it. We have Persian evidence that they did it. The ancient Chinese did it. We have clear evidence from ancient Chinese texts of the barbarians outside the borders. Um, and the further away you got from the center, the more barbaric and more different you were. So the dynamic exists in a lot of different contexts in antiquity, not just amongst the Athenians. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been thinking about when I was traveling around Greece this summer was I just spent a lot of time everywhere we went looking at tombstones and seeing how people who were not from the place that we were in identify themselves on their tombstones. And when you are in Thebes, when you're in the Peloponnese, when you're in certain parts of northern Greece, especially the closer you are to a port, the more likely you are to see people identifying on their tomb with an ethnic when you're up, you know, getting towards ancient Macedon, you're not finding those as much. But I was told they're not available. When we were up in Thessaloniki, we went to Dodona, and apparently there are lots and lots of unpublished bilingual inscriptions. That would really tell us more, right? If people are putting multiple languages on their tomb, mm-hmm. this means they identify with both languages typically. Mm-hmm that maybe they are migrant, they've immigrated or migrated to a place um, that can't tell us how they were treated in those places, but it can at least tell us the frequency with which people who spoke different languages were settling in these places, especially if you have female tombs and children's tombs versus just men's tombs, because men's tombs could be, you know, migrant workers. We have some Macedonians identified as Macedonians south of Macedon. They could have been merchants. They could have been military. We don't know, because you do have Macedonian what do you call those things? Mercenaries? No. no. Troops that are stationed in places outside of their... Garrisons? Yes, garrisons. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, it's totally slipped my mind. And of course, anytime you see the people, men, if they have military insignia, they could be mercenaries. Um, but we're seeing things like, you know, bakers and cobblers and <laughs> these kinds of things that are more like people have migrated. So in terms of what they think about other Greeks and things... At least we can see that there's inter-Greek migration mm-hmm. that's happening, um, settlement by people in other cities. They're setting up shops, but they tend to be concentrated on the coasts, as you might expect. You know, Corinth, mm-hmm. Athens, Methoni, these areas, you're more likely to have the islands. Whereas if you get further inland, you're going to have less of that sort of people like traveling to the mountains of the Peloponnese to go set up a you know bakery. Mm-hmm. It's a little more challenging. <laughs> so that leads me kind of on to my next thought process here or my next line of thought immigration in the mediterranean lots of it lots of it okay <laughs> uh, jump the gun <laughs> um of course there's athens we have the medics and we know quite a bit about them from tombstones and yeah. other sources uh, i mean there's a aristotle was a medic yeah, the republic was set at their, 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 yeah, yeah some of their dialogues the republic is set at the house of lysias's father mm-hmm. lysias the speechwriter. Mm-hmm. i mean he's probably our most well-documented medic from Athens Mm -hmm. because he wrote speeches and he wrote about what happened under the 30 
And a lot of the dialogues from Plato are set in and around his family's estates. So we have quite a bit of information on him. But yeah, so we have a lot of information on Athenian medics. And um, Corinthian ones too, right? There's some information in Corinth. There's also hints of what we could glean from Athenian texts also about Megara. Because that, yeah, it's right there on the Yeah, there's a lot of movement back and mm-hmm. forth between those places. And so, so you'll have texts, especially the orations, a lot of medics in ancient oratory. Mm-hmm. But they'll be like, oh, well, you know, you just came here visiting from Megara, but he's not Megarian, right? Mm-hmm. They're there because it's another port city. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of moving around. So we have evidence of that. But again, anywhere you go on these Greek coasts, you're finding tombstones from lots of different places. And then, of course, there's slaves, which we won't really want to call immigrants. You call them forced immigrants, but really slavery is the big driver of bringing foreign peoples into Greece, but also trade, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know there are good enough numbers of Egyptians in Athens by the end of the fifth century to establish a cult of ISIS, Mm -hmm. right? And one of our texts, Hyperides has a speech where he's explicitly arguing with a guy whose name is Athenogenos, so he's Athens born, but he's Egyptian. Same yeah. thing with Thrace and Bendis. Yeah. And Bendis. Yep. There's a huge cult And that's there. the earliest foreign cult, I the, think, that was imported, that was given official status in Athens. I think you might be right. I just I don't know enough about it, but I, I think I read that when I was working on something. It gets mentioned by passing, I believe, in Plato or yeah, Aristotle. I think it was, it was yeah. established in the 420s, mm-hmm. potentially, so pretty early. Which is around when Asclepius, which is not yeah. a foreign cult per se, but there's a lot of different cultic activity yeah. taking place I mean, in the 420s. And but you know, events. Thrace, right? Thracians, they're kind of Greek, but not really. Like they're mm-hmm. like the sort of <laughs> that nether region between Greek and not Greek. <laughs> it's an interesting goddess, the Bendis one. I talked about it a little bit on the Artemis episode because it's got a good hat. quite, yeah, it's Artemis, but with a fox skin hat. <laughs> so <laughs> they have quite a bit of tombstones, yeah. Thracians in the area too. Yeah. A lot of Isis priestess tombstones from Athens. And we know that the Greeks themselves also immigrated to other places, yes. I mean, several centuries beforehand, and then they continue in the classical period. Because I know, like, Nacratus became even bigger and bigger. Yes, big and, and size. southern Italy. Mm-hmm. Right, southern Italy, the coast of Spain, France, so Marseille. I think it's a sixth century foundation. Yes, because they fought with the Etruscans and Carthaginians yeah. to be able to be there. Yeah. <laughs> and the Herodotus mentions in passing. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of activity and continuing settlement in the west of the Mediterranean in this period. So there was activity earlier of uh, merchants, maybe, or just adventurers going outside the pillars of Heracles. But by the time the Carthaginians we get to the 5th century, the Carthaginians sort of clamp down <laughs> and they run the pass. Go down there and then they go up. Yep, to, to Cornwall. To... And, but Dwayne Roller wrote a really good book called either Through the Pillars or Beyond the Pillars of Heracles that talks about the Atlantic exploration mm-hmm. of the early Greeks. And apparently they got as far as the Canary Islands, he said. There's evidence for that. I remember reading about that. I talked about that briefly as well. Yeah. I didn't go into too much. Yeah. But it's like when people think about it, it's like the Canary Islands, that's really far. That's mm-hmm. almost too. Yeah. The quote-unquote new world. I remember briefly reading about that. I can't remember what his evidence for, if it was literary or archaeological. I think it's literary. Mm-hmm. Like that you have to suss out that they mean the Canary Islands based on other markers. And that's an interesting segue because, you know, when the Carthaginians and they go down to Africa. Oh, yeah. Hanno's, they, Hanno's text. Hanno's text. And they meet these quote-unquote gorillas. Right. <laughs> yes. And I've, the- I've decided. So I translated that text for the race and ethnicity source book. And as I was looking through it and I was looking at where they seem to be located, right? Because it seems they got down as far as Mount Cameroon. Mm -hmm. And that's the volcano, the fire mountain (laughs) that's spewing lava into the sea. If you sort of look 
at the route they took, I'm guessing chimpanzees, potentially mountain gorillas, but they're clearly not humans. But they're not recognizing the difference because it's close enough. Mm-hmm. And because they can actually imagine humans with eyeballs in their chest and feet for heads, like these gigantic foot umbrellas. So why wouldn't there be humans who are hairy mm-hmm. and throw things at them and bite? I mean, <laughs> right. If you have a kunokephalos, kunokephala out in India, you know, a dog head, then you can have a monkey person. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking there's definitely evidence that they ran into some sort of primate that is close enough to human that they could mistake it. And of course, if they did think it was human and they thought like, well, we'll just skin this thing and take the skin back, then you're like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting choice. <laughs> I've always found that fascinating. Is that sort of like the classical route that people later would use for like calling sub-Saharan Africans as monkeys and the racial slurs? Was that just something that came about naturally or did they look back to the classical text? To- I definitely think they're looking back to the classical text. So the Hanno text is interesting. It says it's written by a guy named Hanno who's a Carthaginian. It's clearly a Greek text, and it's clearly not the full story. Mm-hmm. So one of the arguments about the text is that it is a Greek translation of a publicly posted Carthaginian version of the story, and that there was a longer version of the story mm-hmm. that was in Phoenician or whatever. I can't remember what language they thought it was in, but that this was a Greek transcription of a public monument. Because it was hanging in one of their temples that I believe got sacked by the Romans later. Yeah. Yeah. But it was transcribed as early as the 5th century, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't know how widely circulated it was Mm -hmm. as a text. But when we get into the 18th, 19th century, the texts that are being read, actually in the 16th century, the texts that are being read are not necessarily the texts that we would consider the canon today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's clear that Hanno's text was read by some of the later geographers. So it's possible that through that transmission, it came through. I always wonder whether Aristotle knew the text or not, because in some of his texts on animals, the history of animals and things, I don't think he mentions these people. Mm -hmm. The question is, too, did Pliny know this text? But Pliny doesn't mention them either. (laughs) It's always a fascinating (laughs) rabbit hole to go down. But my question always is, what modern Europeans were reading, potentially reading this text? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the question we have to ask. And I don't know. I know they were reading Hippocrates. I know they're reading Vitruvius. I know they're reading Pliny. These are texts that this concept could come from. Mm -hmm. They're definitely reading Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So there are other avenues that this ranking humans in a hierarchy could have borrowed from, but we don't see that kind of ranking system happening in our ancient texts. So I don't think that it's this idea that certain people are closer to animals. Some people might have animal attributes, but they never actually think of them as less human. Except for women, according to Aristotle. Right, but, but women are, are different. Yeah. <laughs> They're totally different. <laughs> They're like a long evolutionary path almost to slaves, and slaves are essentially animals, according to Aristotle. Yeah, I think we need to be concerned about whether or not – I mean, I'm far more comfortable using the language of race and ethnicity to talk about the ancient world than I am using the language of evolution and ranking and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Because those things, this idea of progress of mm-hmm. humanity is definitely not something that was um, in most of our ancient vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can find things that are equivalents of modern racial structures mm-hmm. or racial thinking – Especially with the Athenians in the ancient world, you can find something that this idea of ethnicity can jive with. But evolution and human progression mm-hmm. is not anything I have found. I guess I text. meant it in the, like right, his, right. Uh, his hierarchy. Yeah, his hierarchy. His hierarchy. It's like common phrase you see. But in a what lot you of don't see, like... right? You see women and slaves, and you see Greek men, and you see other men. But what you don't see is 
Greeks, Romans, like you don't see things like, well, Greeks are at the pinnacle and then Romans come next and then Egyptians mm -hmm. come next. And then they talk about, you know, who are the oldest peoples, mm -hmm. who are the youngest peoples, who live closest or furthest away from places. But it's not like whose civilizations are superior versus inferior. Mm -hmm. The Greeks would not rank themselves as the superior civilization necessarily. They recognize that lots of other people had lots of things on them. They might think of themselves as better than the Scythians because they at least, you know, had houses, uh, <laughs> some sort of basic things, but they recognize other things that the Scythians did differently or better. The Egyptians definitely, of course, were... Like the cannabis throwing to the fire. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, there's things that they admired about other people's. The Romans, of course, are different, right? And here's where you have this climatic theory again. The Romans are like, we live in the perfect climate and we're the perfect people. <laughs> It is a nice climate, but... <laughs> it is, but, you know, it's a little hot in the summer. This um, is true. Italy is way better in that sense than Greece, having spent the summer in both places. I can tell you that Italy was not nearly as boiling hot. I didn't think I was going to die. Well, you didn't make it to Sicily, did you? Not this year. Last yeah. year I was in Sicily. Sicily was the worst when I was there for the summer. I was in very good shape the year I spent abroad, and I was doing like morning jogs when I was in Rome and Greece. And then I got to Sicily, and I just I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. It was way too hot and unbearable. Yeah, this summer in Greece, it was you know almost forty degrees Celsius, so mm -hmm. hundred degrees. <laughs> <laughs> most days and you know we're out there hiking around in caves and archaeological sites and thought I was going to die some days <laughs> but they do talk about how and we see this really starting in the late 4th century some of the Greek environmental texts talk about the ideal climate as being that middle climate and that peoples who live in the far north they're cold burned and that's why they look different and people in the far south are heat burned and that's why they look different and this is the humorous theory mm -hmm. that if they live in these colder climates they were really courageous but really dumb <laughs> because of the way that their blood was thick they were phlegmy mm -hmm. and so they had lots of blood to spare because of the cold but they were also too dumb <laughs> to realize that they shouldn't throw themselves into battle so that's our northern europeans and then the people referred to as the Ethiopians, they were highly intelligent because of the heat and the lack of phlegm and other things, but their blood was thin. And so they were cowardly because they were too smart to throw themselves into battle. They're like, this is not a fight we can win. We don't have enough blood to spare. We're going to go that way. As opposed to the Northern Europeans who too dumb to not throw themselves in. Very courageous. I wonder how much that view of the Southern, the Egyptians, Ethiopians, and the Libyans, and that cowardly battle and like the too hot was influenced by the fact that they, by that point, had been using Greek mercenaries primarily. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Egyptians, I never see cowardly associated with the Egyptians. Yeah. They're uh, not far enough south. Oh, not that far. I okay. mean, here's the thing, right? The Greeks, when you're talking about the central climatic zone for the Greeks and the Romans, North Africa is part of the central zone, okay. as is you know the extent of the Persian Empire. It's along latitudes, not longitudes. It's not mm -hmm. east-west. It's north-south. And so all these peoples that we think that the Greeks and the Romans hated and thought they were superior to i mean it's one thing to think that your way of doing things is the better way to do it to thinking that those people are subhuman mm -hmm. no they knew that these people were highly cultured mm -hmm. they're all in the same climatic zone <laughs> so yeah, of course they can develop strong civilizations because they're in the same place as we are and in fact if you look at the hippocratic airs waters places text the geographic dividing line between Europe and Asia is a diagonal, and so that there's a big chunk of Greece that counts as Asia, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? What we would consider the divide between Asia and Europe isn't even the same because they didn't think that way. They thought north-south. 
And that north-south division included within the same zone Egyptians, Libyans, Persians. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating because, you know, the the popular view, you think of Greeks versus others. The modern view. The modern view. And the way you're describing it, it's kind of like how, I don't want to say everybody, but you get a lot of people, especially in the modern world, they're like, oh, we're tolerant. We love everybody from all cultures, but I love mine better and I don't want to live in that culture sort of thing. Is that how you're... Yeah. I mean, so, so think about this, right? It's like, you know, Herodotus describes the Egyptians. Greeks lived in Egypt and, you know, Mm -hmm. they went to Egypt. Egyptians were in Athens. They interacted with each other, but they thought the Egyptians, you know, peed outdoors instead of indoors, and they thought that was weird, and <laughs> they, why would they want to participate in that? But the things that they liked from Egypt, they just adapted to their own purposes, like gods, mm-hmm. like clothing styles, textiles. The Greeks are very good at adapting things, which is why you get a lot of people who are like, the Greeks stole cultures from other people. Right. It's, it's, it's like, it's, no, it's, they just I mean, adapted the, it. The Romans are like the great assimilators, right? The mm-hmm. Romans just like, oh, we like that. We'll take that. Mm-hmm. But they're also in full on imperialist mode mm-hmm. as opposed to the majority of the Greeks when they're interacting with places like the Persians or the Egyptians. They're the inferior culture. They're the smaller culture. They're the less developed group. And so they're borrowing more things. I think we, in commercial context. In commercial so. context. I think we tend to forget that the Greeks were the little guys on the block because of their literature and the way their literature has been elevated mm-hmm. by the modern Europeans and in our education system, we forget that they were just like little puny guys. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not really until Alexander. And then, of course, Alexander changes things. But when you look at the Seleucids in Asia and you look at the Ptolemies in Egypt, they may be the ostensible rulers, but they have to adapt themselves to the places they're at. Yeah, they didn't force. They could. They couldn't on them. have forced yeah. Greekness on them. It had to come naturally, <laughs> and it didn't. So they also became. You know, this is one of the things that you see with Alexander, and one of the things that in Plutarch freaks the Macedonians out is that Alexander is becoming Persian. Mm-hmm. Right, he's adopting their clothing. He's adopting their mechanism. The Athenians adopted Persian mechanisms for governing their allies. They just used the Persian system because it worked. So, there are Spartans who adopted too. You oh, the get, Spartans uh, adopted get, too. Yeah, was it Pausanias who gets <laughs> basically <laughs> who gets basically ramrod and called a Persian satrap and yeah. hiding or whatever. Well, I mean, what do you think? What did, yeah. what did Themistocles do when he got ostracized? He married a satrap's daughter, Magnesia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. It was set up right. So this is this fluidity between these groups. But often, as we see in our sources, even Greek conquerors becoming the quote unquote barbarian in order to actually rule because they can't rule as Greeks. Mm-hmm. It won't work. Because these are older, more established civilizations. And so you have this veneer of Hellenization or a veneer of Romanization, but beneath that veneer surface. I mean, when the Romans went over to Greece, it's a veneer of Romanness mm-hmm. over top of the Greekness, which is a veneer. I mean, the most widely spoken language was Aramaic. Mm-hmm. Right? It wasn't Greek. Greek was the most widely spoken official language of the courts and things. But then, of course, when the Romans come along, you have to file your wills in Latin. Mm-hmm. If you are a citizen, uh, if you want to be recognized. And that system was built upon the Persian system. And it's all built on the Persian system. Yeah. They just like most – well, I don't want to say most, but uh, conquerors who know what they're doing <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> will just take the infrastructure of the people they're using and just put different people Well, this charge. is actually a conversation <laughs> I had with my students this week when we were talking about the Achaemenid Empire and really looking at how Darius sort of solidified the empire and the public messaging, his monuments mm-hmm. and texts that he promoted to solidify his rule. And, you know, it's the difference between Cambyses going down to Egypt and like sacrificing the Apis bull and eating it and Darius going down and building a canal and then setting up a monument to it 
that uses Egyptian imagery and iconography and adapts mm-hmm. himself to Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. He did it the right way and he didn't get assassinated within, you know, eight years of his rule. He ruled for over 40 years. If you believe Herodotus, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think that, you know, what's her name? The queen up in uh, Scythia poured a skull full of blood down his throat. Oh, uh, Uh, Tamiris. Tamiris, yeah. yeah. I don't think that's exactly what happened. Um, I like to think it did, but (laughs) that's such an unglorious way to die. For For the great. Bad things could have happened out east too. I mean, because you don't get a whole lot. Well, of we Persian all know in the east. you never go into a land war in Asia. This is true. <laughs> Still true. <laughs> you, you'll, get, you'll get bogged down unless you're Alexander. Yeah, but he got bogged down too. Well, he went to India. Like he got bogged. He down kept way going way further. Than, he kept yeah. going, but he got lucky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there's a difference between you know someone who wants to rule and someone who doesn't want to rule, and how you adapt versus how you appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, don't even get me started on the language of cultural appropriation. It's really funny because when I teach my race and ethnicity class, my students are reading these texts and they're like, "Man, those Romans are such appropriators." And I was like, "You know, we need to have a conversation about what cultural appropriation is, when you can apply the term, and whether you can, in fact, apply it to these big, broad cultural sweeps of the Mediterranean where mm-hmm. everybody's intersecting and interacting and adapting and adopting from each other mm-hmm. all the time. It's not the same as when you have people taking a product produced by one group of people, erasing their contribution and making a profit off of it, which is what cultural appropriation is today. Sure, the Athenians are making knockoff Persian-style shoes, <laughs> but so what? I mean, there's people living in Athens who would like to wear those shoes. That's that right. Are, that are foreigners who... There are yeah. Athenians who are wearing... There's yeah. a huge market in Persian-style clothing and jewelry in Athens in the period when they supposedly hate the Persians the most. Didn't Alcibiades wear a lot of that? All of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was the one who bought all the shoes. <laughs> yeah, but all of them. Margaret Miller wrote a book on this where she basically goes through and tracks all of the Persian goods that we know and all those... These beautiful textiles that we see on vases and in carvings and things, these are Persian textiles. The shoes that are my favorite, the Persica shoes, they loved Persian luxury. It's like being able to get your Gucci bag on the corner in Athens, right? You can get what looks like a Gucci bag and you know it's not really a Gucci bag, but you can at least look like it, like you have a Gucci bag, (laughs) right? Get your fashion, your knockoff fashion at an affordable price so that then Persian fashion actually becomes something that isn't just elite as it was earlier. It's something that permeates culture. So I think we think too much about how clothing is also a differentiator when we know we have them borrowing clothing styles from each other. That's just because like every single new person Herodotus mentions, he talks about the clothes that they wore. I actually think one of the reasons why he does that, especially when he's talking about the laying out the different Mm -hmm. peoples of the empire, is because this is what Darius does, right? If you look at the iconography that the Persian kings use of the peoples that they rule over, because Darius, of course, Cyrus, but really Darius kind of solidifies this, is the first ancient empire that we have. It was the largest empire of its day, but also the first one that actually didn't force assimilate people Mm -hmm. to it. I wouldn't say that it celebrated people's differences. Like, I don't know if the people who were subject to Persia were like really excited to be subject to Persia, but it was a hallmark of the Persian empire that they were multicultural and multilingual. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the inscriptions that we have, official inscriptions, are in multiple languages. 
whether it's, you know, Old Persian, Elamite, and Akkadian, or Old Persian and Elamite and hieroglyphs, or whatever, where it was located, it might change, but they were always multilingual inscriptions. You know, it's the Persepolis Apadan, the big stairwell mm-hmm. that leads up to the platform where the king received the tribute from the members of the uh, empire. It's got all of the individual groups, so we can tell who the different peoples of the empire were by their clothing, <laughs> especially their hats. If there's a standard type of iconography that distinguishes peoples by their clothing style visually, and it's an official thing, that this is how those people become identified. And you can also keep track of what they're bringing and giving as well. If yeah. you can be like, this is what they brought. Right. And they also say. would bring things that were considered local goods, mm-hmm. right? Type of plants, animals that would be specific. You know, are you in the agricultural belt? Well, you know, we have pictures of Medes carrying big sacks of grain. Well, where's Medea? You know, it's in the Euphrates Tigris mm-hmm. Valley. So one of the guys is carrying a big sack of grain on his shoulder. That's their tribute, right? Mm-hmm. That's their local product. So, but I often wonder, right, how much of this presentation did all Scythians, there's two kinds of Scythians, right? There's pointy-hatted Scythians. I refer to them as the gnomes. So they have the pointy hats. And then there's the floppy-hatted Scythians. I refer to them as the Smurfs. They're the red cloaks too? Well, not in the Persian iconography. Oh, okay. There's two kinds. Those are the royal Scythians. Uh-huh. But they have the floppy hat. Now, is this something that they actually wore at home? Or is this just basically the goods that they sold outside of home? Right? Or, or are they marketing themselves with these local products as well? It could just be like, what do you normally wear? And what do you wear to church? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like this, is what, this is what you wear when you go see the king. This is what I, yeah, this is what I wear when I show up yeah. to bow down in front of the king of Persia. Yeah. <laughs> right? This is not what I would wear on the horseback. <laughs> right? Because one of the things I also laugh at, right, is the Greeks always accuse the Persians or the Athenians, anyway, in their pottery, always show the Persians as wearing pants. When you look at Persian representations of themselves, they're not wearing pants. They don't like pants. <laughs> Who likes pants? I'm actually convinced, though, that Alexander's entire conquest was this, like, misunderstanding. He was trying to wipe out pants <laughs> from the world, and he should have gone north, and instead he went east, and he wiped out no pants. <laughs> but this is one of the reasons why we have trouble distinguishing Scythians, Amazons, and Persians on attic vases. Oh, yeah. It's because they put them all in, like, New Jersey housewife leopard print pantsuits, you know? <laughs> leopard. Every time I think of leopard, I, I, always, and I always think of, like, the Dionysus. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he's Panthers. He's, he's, yeah, pan- he's in but, but they call them Panthers, but yeah. then they put spots on them. Yeah. I just think of Dionysus <laughs> prowling around with his wine wearing his uh, panther suit. <laughs> I think of really bad, you know, stereotypes of 1980s Jersey mob wives. The big hair. And, the, and, <laughs> and like, what do you call them? They're like the athletic pants. Track suits. Oh, track like suits. Leopard print track suit, right? That's what they look like. <laughs> well, I think one of the things we can say about all this stuff is that these attempts to sort of boil down race and ethnicity in the ancient world and these sort of the other and dichotomies It's a false narrative that the evidence that we have simply doesn't support because you have to look at more than just three texts or four texts and then use those texts to interpret vases, which have their own sort of iconography, but also look at the context in which people like Herodotus and the Hippocratic sources and, you know, Lysias and Plato and all these guys are operating and you see it's a far more complicated world. They didn't think the world was us and them. They didn't think that, you know, if it was us and them, it was Athens versus Sparta or Athens versus Thebes <laughs> or, you know, these kinds of dichotomies. And it's much less, you know, Greeks against the world. They, but- they recognized the world was a lot more complicated and their own cities were filled with foreignness. Mm-hmm. But you're asking for like, 
groups of people to use nuance and not cherry pick certain sources to back up their worldview. Yeah, well, well I, we find that's very difficult. I, well, but I guess what I find really troubling is that most of the people who have been doing the cherry picking for the last hundred years have been highly educated PhD scholars in our field. You know, I'll say names here, but like people like Donald Kagan, where it's a very cherry picked view. And it's a very cherry-picked view that has had a very outsized influence Mm -hmm. on the way people understand the ancient world. And it's one that is his own political investment. And people take these views as if they're the ones who have promoted the truth about the ancient Mm -hmm. world. And then the rest of us are revisionist historians. And yes, we are revisionist historians because a historical narrative that's false needs to be revised. But those narratives are promoted not because they're true, but because it was convenient to the 18th century to posit an Eastern other in the Ottoman Empire. It was convenient in the 19th century to have a backwards Africa to, you know, allow for imperialism. Same thing with India, to have these cultures be people that were demonized in our sources that Brits and the French and the Germans and others claimed as their cultural heritage, taking it away from modern Greeks and modern Italians, saying that they didn't own it because they were not the true inheritors of their own culture, and turning it into a weapon to use against these other cultures. So they cherry-picked intentionally and... Let's also be fair, in the 18th and 19th century, they didn't have access to the same sources we had. Mm -hmm. But especially with archaeology and the increased number in sources that we've had access to, there's no excuse for scholars over the last, you know, 60 years, 50 years to continue this narrative. It's a convenience born first of, you know, colonialism and imperialism and then of the Cold War. So you mean to tell me that we shouldn't rely upon Gibbon for our understanding of (laughs) migration patterns and people? (laughs) No, and and probably not for the role of Christianity in the ancient world, especially. (laughs) I find that a lot of people still read that. I mean, I have an illustrated three-volume set. I have a nice nice edition of Gibbon. It's sort of a rite of passage that you go through. But no, you know, it's not necessarily the most up-to-date, best scholarship, most accurate representation of the ancient world. So one of the courses that you teach, I guess, regularly, and you're currently teaching now, is about art and modern politics. Yeah, so this, this is the second time I've taught this class, Ancient Art, Modern Politics. And you look at how certain groups of people, I guess, throughout history have used that sort of propaganda, fascist groups, nationalist groups, and mm-hmm. recently white supremacist groups. When did that movement kind of start? Well, so I actually, in the class, start with showing how the sources themselves, the Achaemenid monuments, Mm -hmm. Athenian monuments, Roman monuments, are themselves not innocent. They're propaganda themselves for specific political agendas, whether that political agenda is promoting the great king and his version of how he became king, whether that agenda is promoting the autochthonous view of the Athenians and their closed citizenship Mm -hmm. ideals, or whether it's promoting Augustus, right, as the restorer of the republic, or other things, that this idea of art, particularly public monuments, being inherently political, there's no such thing as an innocent public monument, an apolitical public monument. If you're putting something up in the public face, you are trying to control the narrative, Mm -hmm. right? And that's how you want history to be remembered. The monuments themselves aren't history. They could be erasers of history, or they could be manufacturers of a specific type of history. So I start there so that we sort of get the terms of debate and recognize that these aren't necessarily inappropriate appropriations. Mm-hmm. Right? We talk, when we talk about appropriating the classics in a modern context, people often think it's a misuse of the ancient world. Sometimes they're just using what the ancient world did mm-hmm. and just repurposing it. 
if the shoe fits, mm-hmm. right? The Athenians were not multicultural lovers. Mm-hmm. They were not big fans of multiculturalism in the 5th century or in the 4th century. So to claim that groups who are borrowing Athenian ideas to argue against immigration is a misuse of ancient sources, they're just quoting the ancient sources. Mm-hmm. Okay? I think we need to recognize that the ancients weren't, it wasn't like some sort of fantasy land. There are peoples all over the Mediterranean, but they're not always playing nice. And not everybody in that ancient group subset had the same views. Exactly. This idea that there's a monolithic single way of doing things all the time by everybody anywhere, (laughs) anytime is, is something we need to stop saying. The Greeks thought this for like statically for 500 years in every polis and every member of every polis, whether that person was, you know, a blacksmith who was barely scraping by or a tavern keeper or whether they were, you know, Alcibiades mm-hmm. or whether they are, you know, Cleisthenes, right? He's, you know, half of them have Scythian or Thracian mothers, mm-hmm. right? Their view on Thracians is going to be different, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I start there to let them sort of get the dynamics. And then, yes, then we go into... I start with Winkelmann, the father of art history. I could, in fact, start earlier if I wanted to do less focus on monuments and more focus on more of the sort of drawings and things, because we see with Europeans getting to the Americas for the first time, (laughs) it's already been discovered long ago. It was not empty of people when they arrived. So when Europeans start coming to the Americas, They're using texts like Pliny and things like that and Ptolemy to understand and process the world that they're seeing. And so they're processing the different peoples that they're seeing through medieval drawings of ancient texts. At one point when I did the class, I did start back there. But this time I decided to go more with sort of physical monuments and sculpture uh, and architecture. So I started with Winkelmann, the father of art history, and his fetishization of Roman copies of ancient sculptures, the Discobolus and the Apollo Belvedere being the two primary ones. This idea that the polished white stone that we see, obviously, if you've been paying attention, you know, polychromy debates, one, that these things weren't painted, but two, that this is what people actually looked like, and three, that these were the original sculptures. These are replicas done in marble. Some of our ancient sculptures were done in marble, but those are usually reliefs. A lot of these were bronze in their first iteration, and they didn't look gleaming white and shiny. They looked bronze. Very, (laughs) very brownish. Very different, right? So we imagine an ancient world where you look around and there are all these gleaming white polished stone statues, when in fact what you're looking around is you're seeing a lot of gleaming brown polished statues. And very, very fluorescent colored temples. <laughs> yes, fluorescent colored temples. I think that there's part of the new Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It does a decent job of trying to capture that color and grittiness of the city instead of this sort of like pristine fantasy of everything's white marble everywhere. Doesn't it do kind of what the Nashville Parthenon does where it's like some of it's white and some of they're colorful? Mm-hmm. I can't yeah, it's a mixture. Yeah. But, but one of the things where you see some of the white sculptures is you see the guys carving them. Ah, okay. So it's pre-paint. So they're catching them in the action, Yeah, which yeah. is actually really cool. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the Romans put these white sculptures in their gardens and things, mm-hmm. right? They're going to get weathered. They're going to get worn down. But so I start with Winkelmann and his fetishization of these nude bodies of athletes and gods and, you know, what that means for the development of the concept of whiteness as a political category. That's late 18th century. And then we move into the 19th century. And in this particular class, I look at World's Fairs as the next step. So the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 is a really key, important moment 
for one, the linking of the classical to white supremacy. So what happens at these World's Fairs? The Chicago World's Fair, so the first World's Fair in the U.S., the earliest World's Fair, I believe, was the London World's Fair, the Crystal Palace in the Mm -hmm. 1850s with Victoria. That was a showcase of the British Empire, basically brought back. And then there were some in Paris after that. The first one in the U.S. was Philadelphia, 1876, as the sort of, you know, centennial exhibition. And the Americans did it a little differently. We had an empire, but it was sort of a hidden empire, right? The Philippines, um, parts of the Caribbean, you know, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska. So we had these sort of hidden parts of empire. So in this Philadelphia one, it wasn't really about empire. It was mostly about American industrial progress. So in 1893, though, they decided to put the Chicago World's Fair together. And this one was going to be a showcase of empire and industrialization yoked together. And it was going to be completely encased in the concept of the classical. So at this fair, you have the core of the fair itself, which was called the White City. It was a gigantic replica of an imaginary classical city. They couldn't do it in marble. These places were meant to be sort of like, they're the precursors to Disneyland Uh and Epcot Center. Made this in Chicago. Yeah. So they took this uninhabited area along the lake and they manufactured a temporary city and they stuccoed all the buildings and painted them white. And then they surrounded the place with white sculptures of symbols, allegories, One of the allegories was the everyman, right? So you have this gigantic farmer with his yoked oxen, like in larger-than-life white, supposedly marble form, right? And in this place, they had housed sort of the official buildings, housed things like the Hall of Industry. So different corporations could promote, you know, their diesel engines, you know, the development of the engine. Products. And Jemima syrup was invented for the fair, (laughs) right? Things like this. But imagine now, you know that it's being promoted in this fair. When I tell you about the rest of the fair, you'll be like, I should never use Aunt Jemima syrup again (laughs) because it's really racist. Um, (laughs) So the interior of the fair is this beautiful thing called the White City. That's all classical architecture and sculptural forms painted up and stuccoed in white. And it was meant to represent... And they're explicit in their discussions of these in their letters. It is meant to represent the peak of civilization, which is Anglo-Saxon civilization, right? It's not European civilization. It's the Anglo-Saxons, right? This group of people that doesn't really actually exist. But that was what whiteness was back then. All the states had pavilions where they could like, here are our state local product. You know, Ohio is like, hi, we're going to give you tires. Um, (laughs) That's what was going on in Ohio was the rubber factories, right? But you can give your sort of local products and you can showcase your state. The African-American groups wanted to have something there, but they were rejected. And we actually have this scathing indictment of the fair written by Ida B. Wells with Frederick Douglass also writing part of it and another individual also writing part of it, criticizing the fair and the way that African-Americans were systematically excluded from it. And when they were represented, it was stereotypes like Aunt Jemima. So if the interior of the fair is like Disneyland, right, and you go to visit all these sort of like museums, right, high art and industry are set side by side, and these are both the things that identify a civilization. Importantly, industry that allows you to manipulate environment, right? So that's all housed up here in this wonderful space. And then on the exterior, you have a thing called the Midway, which is where a well-known anthropologist set up and designed basically pavilions that are kind of like Epcot Center, like different countries. And there you would have things like the Eskimo Village, 
or Native Americans sitting in a little, you know, enclosure. (laughs) In a teepee, essentially. Yeah. So you would have these sort of various different nations represented and they're sort of laid out. So there's like a, you know, a German beer garden close to the white city. Right, because it's respectable. And then then the further you get away, you know, The Secrets of Cairo was a really popular adventure. There was a belly dancer. (gasps) Salacious. (laughs) So all of these different things. But exoticizing foreignness and particularly having them ranked in this hierarchy. And there was also an official anthropology building in the fair itself that sort of solidified these hierarchies of white Anglo-Saxons and then sort of ranking people down. And they're ranked not just by skin color, but also they were ranked by technological advancement. Technological advancement specifically wedded to a modern environmental deterministic model. The Japanese really threw them off because the Japanese showed up with this pavilion that was hands down considered the most beautiful structure of the entire fair. They had built everything ready to assemble, brought it, put it together. And everyone was like, oh my God, but the Japanese, they're yellow people. <laughs> so they had to like change where they put the Japanese. Change the criteria. <laughs> well, they were almost intimidated by the technological advancement and the beauty of their technology. So they moved them up in the hierarchy. <laughs> they were just below ancient Greeks and Romans in the human hierarchy. Modern Japanese are just below ancient Greeks and Romans. Yeah, who were below modern Anglo-Saxons and modern Europeans. Northern Europeans. You you did not include, you know, Eastern Europeans or the Mediterranean folks in that category. So you didn't include modern Italians and Greeks, but you included ancient Ancient, Roman and Greeks. The the logical judo that you have to do in your mind. Yeah, it's really amazing. So we talk about these world's fairs, specifically Chicago, but then also St. Louis, which was when the arch was erected in St. Louis. Uh, And that one was really great because that was when the Native American groups that they had on display were too lethargic and weren't being vicious enough for the crowds. So they brought in the Wild Bill Hickok show to spice things up (laughs) so they could stage fake, you know, cowboys and and Indians battles. Um, And the whole thing, they were all enterprises in promoting um, the superiority of the white race and yoking that to technology to try to show how everybody else is inferior and in many instances subhuman and that they deserve to be in the position that they're in. So they were creating the institutions that actually systemically promoted racism and doing so in order to hide the mechanisms of racism so that they could say it wasn't racism on their part, it's that these people are just inferior. These world's fairs are showcases of the scientific racism of the time with these anthropological displays um, and then also sort of feeding off of stereotypes and creating new ones. So, so we look at those. Isn't that about the time they started initial strokes too? Oh yeah, they're from them as well. I mean, oh, so many things that we don't realize that first hit the country at the Chicago World's Fair. There's a really great book. It's called All the World's Affair. And every time I read it, I'm just like, oh my God, like, are we still doing this? And, and we are. And people forget where it comes from. Like, this is why we have Columbus Day. Columbus Day was invented for the opening day of the fair. I did not know that. Yes. And that is actually why the Pledge of Allegiance was written, was for the opening day of the fair. So these are products of the 1890s. These are not products of the founding of America. And yet we continue to pretend that they define us as Americans. Because the biggest key important thing that came out of the Chicago World's Fair, other than for me, the explicitly yoking of classical antiquity to modern white supremacy, is the creation of the concept of the average American. It was an attempt to bring in- As opposed to below average American. Well, the average American, when we talk about real Americans, that's where it was defined, this idea that it's white, you know, rural men, (laughs) essentially, and people who work in industry as the backbone of America. It was a way to usurp them, to get them to support these corporations that were actually highly exploitative of them. 
but to get them to buy into this because they were real Americans and they had all these other people who were living here but weren't real Americans that they could compare themselves to. Sounds like things have changed quite a bit. <laughs> so different. <laughs> um, when we talk about identity politics, there's no such thing as politics that isn't identity politics. Let's just be clear. The Athenians were doing it. You know, mm -hmm. the Egyptians were doing it. The Persians were doing it. The Spartans were doing it. But we've been doing identity politics since, you know, really the end of the Civil War. Reconstruction. Yeah. But the World's Fair is really hammered at home because millions upon millions of people travel to go to these shows. And we have their diaries and we have books that were written out of it and we have all the materials about them. And it was explicitly meant to be racist. <laughs> and, and then I go to Mussolini and the Nazis <laughs> after that. So I'm vaguely familiar with the World's Fairs. I think I have read an article that you may have written mm -hmm. and that's about it. They, yeah. don't, they don't get taught at all for obvious reasons. We you, like to uh, brush things under our You need to suppress the mechanisms of your power. You need to hide them. Yeah. Because if we actually taught about these World's Fairs, then what people would realize is that whiteness is a construct, that white is, is a race as well, that it is an identity. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a norm against which everybody else is playing identity politics to, but that it was done that way intentionally. And so we can't talk about that. Because if you show the strings on the puppet, then you can't control the puppet anymore. Yeah, things have changed. <laughs> it's really frightening how much it hasn't changed. There are remnants of these World's Fairs all over the U.S. So I grew up in San Diego, and there's a little place in San Diego called Old Town, which, you know, has like little structures on learning about, you know, settler life in San Diego when white people first moved out there. And that was from the World's Fair that was done out there. And of course, one of the most famous is the Nashville Parthenon, which was built for their World's Fair, which was the invention of the New South World's Fair. I do like the Parthenon, though, even, yeah, but even if it has a checkered past. Don't try and give a talk in there or even have a conversation in there. The acoustics are horrible. But what's interesting about it is that it was never meant to exist this long. It was built right. to be temporary for the fair. But that whole park where it is, you can sort of go around, you see Centennial the remnants. Park. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the layout of everything, it's that was all done for the fair. There have been some minor changes. I want to say 2011, maybe 2012 might have been the first time I saw it. It was actually like the really first time that I realized... Even though it's not completely painted and it's not painted the way it would have been. It, and it was and like it's also done in a sand, brown sandstone. Yeah. It made me visualize better because I didn't really know much a whole about polychromy until recently. Until apparently talking about polychromy means that you hate white people. Yeah. So it gives, <laughs> it gives a good visualization because it's just a lot of red and brown. And that's not all the colors that would have been on ancient monuments. But at the same time, it's like not a pure white building. I mean, this is one of the things we also have to remember is that with polychromy itself... We can only restore the paint that we're able to get traces of, and the paints that we're able to get traces of are typically the ones that are the most saturated colors. The brightest the, ones, the, yeah. the reds, the blues, mm -hmm. those golds. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have very little of from especially architectural sculpture mm -hmm. is skin. We don't know what they did with the skin. So most of the renderings that you see that just paint people like Augustus, the Prima Porta and things with like peachy color skin, we don't actually know if that's accurate. We do know that it probably wasn't black because that might have saturated better. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's gonna, a lot of its guesswork. Yeah. But the guesswork is almost always informed by we want them to look like us. But if bronze sculpture and bronze was considered more close to realistic by the ancients themselves, you know, and we know like the Riachi bronzes, we know, have a good idea of what they looked like. But if we know that that's what they thought of as more realistic skin tone, and we know that some of these sculptures, because we're told in some of our sources, were painted to look like the bronze that they were replicas of, then we're doing a disservice and continuing to promote a misrepresentation of the ancient world by even in polychromy reconstructions of putting peach, like that Northern European yeah. white people skin, sort of pale people skin, it's untanned people. 
it's different, but this conversation made me think of the whole mask of Agamemnon looking very Germany. <laughs> uh, that just popped in my head. Has nothing at all to do with color, but right. it just made me think. Looks like the people that wanted to look that way they wanted to look. So, yeah. So you said you also talk about Mussolini. I'm yeah. vaguely familiar with that because I studied abroad in Rome for right. quite some time. So you, you probably there- went around the city. You went to UAR. Yeah. Um, the museum down there is nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I went down there for the first time this year. It's unfortunate that some of the fountains and things aren't working because you can't get the mm-hmm. full effect of what it was been. But UAR never really took off. But what's really interesting is it's probably the most famous building from there is the brutalist replica of the Colosseum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? With all the arches. That was featured in the Titus Andronicus film version mm-hmm. by Julie Taymor. It's now the, I think, Fendi. It's their home office. It's either Fendi or Dior. One of these big fashion designers has it as their main office. So it's really interesting. Yeah. But if you went down to see the Arapacus, of course, that square was built by Mussolini mm-hmm. for the Arapacus. This, this is a very famous, right? When the Arapacus was discovered, and then Hitler came down for his v- famous visit in like 34, 35 or something. And he was able to show off the Arapacus to him. You know, Hitler wasn't pleased. He didn't really like Mussolini. But, you know, then Mussolini built this square. So there's, you know, and there's Faskis everywhere in Rome. And those Faskis are not ancient. <laughs> Most of those Faskis are from Il Duce. I learned this year that Mussolini actually hated the city of Rome. He's from Milan. He spent most of his time in Milan, but he recognized the power of making the city of Rome this showcase for Italian identity. And so he strategically put up monuments and, and staged the city. And much of when you go to Rome today is Mussolini's staging of these ancient monuments. And so he understood the power of that. And of course, for modern Italians, you know, the ability of them to prepackage the past that is living all around them as their heritage and as their being direct descendants is much easier than it was for Hitler to stage himself and his Germans as the true descendants of the Greeks, though he tried. (laughs) That's something else you talk about, too. Yeah, that's another thing we do in the class is we look a lot at how Hitler tried to create the physical environment. I have them reading some material on the other aspects, like the actual sort of intellectual aspects, uh, the education system, how they basically changed the history of Germany to start with the Nordic invasion of Greece in, you know, the Bronze Age. Oh, and also... Heraclidae. No, it's like before that, right? They they counted something like four invasions, right? That each time it repurified the blood. But they also invaded India, you know, anywhere where there was a great civilization. That's where the Nordics went. Persia, Egypt, these were all actually Nordic civilizations, according to Hitler and the Nazis, and that the ruling classes were always Germanic, and that what killed these civilizations off was intermixture with the local population. Sounds familiar. It doesn't it sound familiar? Yeah. It's really frightening, you know, to realize that people are following these 1930s textbooks that the Nazis wrote. Some don't even realize it and others are doing it intentionally. But a lot of the stuff that you find of how Hitler himself promoted their connection to the Greeks is what actually filtered after World War II into the Western Civ curriculum. So I mean, that to me is the most frightening part is that I study Hitler to look at and see how he made Greece his own because, of course, when he goes down to Greece proper, he basically commits genocide. The German troops were savage to the contemporary Greeks. 
they weren't the true inheritors. They were the thieves of German culture. They were occupiers of the land. And they treated them as subhuman, which is one of the things that baffles me to no end why anybody from Greece would be a member of Golden Dawn and could embrace Nazi ideologies, other than that they seem to maybe think that they themselves are the last remnants of the Nordic descendants of those ancient invasions. What was the phrase that Trump used? It's like, I love the unintelligent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I love the unintelligent. Yeah, that's how that comes about. Not knowing your past and not knowing. Or uh, knowing it and, and wanting to be the person who can do it. Well, right? that's very true too. But I think, you know, we have this issue where there are policies of the Nazis that people want to embrace because they want to be the person on top. Mm-hmm. And they want to imagine themselves as the person on the top of the pecking order instead of empathizing or recognizing that they're not that person, they're the people that it was done to because they don't want to be victims. When I learned Greek history, I didn't actually realize that the Dorian invasion wasn't a thing until I got to grad school, which is kind of sad. Given the day and age, right? I mean, the Dorian invasion, the nails in the coffin really came in the 70s. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the idea that our professors are still teaching and some still teach that this is real is distressing. And I know why it happens. And it's because when you have people like Kagan who put their imprimatur on these ideas and they have such a big name in the field and they also have political clout and standing because of where they teach, et cetera, and no one is telling them otherwise and they're not keeping up with the scholarship. Why should I keep up the scholarship? I wrote a book 40 years ago. I'm still right. This is one of the mentalities. And then they only cite themselves. He's not the only one. There's a lot who do that. But it gets this imprimatur of, of legitimacy and of truth when it doesn't actually have that. And this is one of the problems that I think we face in classics is, one, that people don't keep up with the scholarship even in their area <laughs> until they have to. Unless you're publishing something and you have to cite the stuff. But you can get away with not citing people who are contrary to you or just saying, you know, CF this person who is wrong. Um, (laughs) right. Um, citation practices, the way peer review works, the fact that we have this sort of academic star system where people who are well known, you know, they published five books and so they get five more book contracts and their books automatically get published regardless of the quality. So the way that academic presses function sometimes are problematic. But also a lot of these courses that are being taught, the way students are being introduced to Greek history is through... I mean, I know some high school teachers who have been teaching since the 60s, and they teach the exact same thing that they taught in the 60s. It doesn't shock me. It doesn't, Sad, yeah, right? Sadly. But I have colleagues in political science and in history departments who weren't trained in classics departments, but were trained in history departments. They're really medievalists or they're early modern people, but they're the closest thing the department has to an ancient person, so they get to go teach it. And they're using these big packaged Western Civ books that are really slow to evolve because the people involved in the writing them are not the people who are actually doing the scholarship over the last 30 to 40 years that have really debunked these old racist theories, which are in fact old racist theories that are made up. We don't have any evidence. The archaeology totally contradicts these things. And this is another problem, of course, is that it's Which only- they argue that the archaeology actually contributes. Yeah. Because I, I remember vaguely, I had a discussion with an archaeologist when I was in grad school about this. And I was like, no, it's that this is true. This is what the archaeology shows. And he's like, no. And I was like, it was like an eyes opening. I was like, I've been taught wrong my entire life. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting, too, of course, is now we've got the ancient DNA controversies. Oh, yeah. Right? Don't even get me started on that. But something important to note, right, is that the people who are often doing these ancient DNA testing are not people who are familiar with the archaeology. And what they don't know is they don't know the histories of migration, right? They don't know the histories of these past people. And they have so few samples. 
right? You've got 19 samples or something from the Bronze Age that you can get something from. You don't even randomly select. You select them from specific geographic areas, and then you say, these people are marked for these areas, ignoring the fact that you can't actually account for their migration if they migrated there or any migration that took place over the course of like 2,000 years before that. I think there's right? a moral in not separating <laughs> STEM and humanities. There. Yeah, I know. There is. It really is. <laughs> but, you know, they take that would have been decided by modern geneticists to mark modern population groups by geography, right? So what makes someone who is from Central Asia? Well, what makes someone from Central Asia today is clearly not going to be the same DNA markers that mark someone from Central Asia 2,000 years ago. We know of massive movements of people, millions of people moving right? They can only go back maybe 400 years with any clarity. Well, what about the previous 6,000 years, right? And so they're taking what are modern markers from modern populations, and they're trying to apply those markers to ancient populations. And instead of suggesting that maybe these ancient populations moved places that led to these being the modern DNA markers, they're like, oh, look, this proves that they were from that area. Like they're doing it backwards. That's like very unscientific if you think about it. It's not objective is what it is. It's not you objective. You have a theory, you're trying to prove it and you're trying to fit it into your theory. Yeah, and not only that, but not all DNA is alike. DNA pulled from somebody who lives in, you know, West Africa now is not the same as DNA pulled from an Egyptian tomb 4,000 years ago and pretending that they should be. And then it's like, oh, well, these are not indigenous Egyptians. These are people from Central Asia. How long does someone have to be in a place for them to be indigenous, <laughs> right? You know, if you've been in a place for 300 years, like I am not an indigenous American in the sense that I am a Native American, but I'm an American. One side of my family has been in the U.S. since before the Revolutionary War. How long do you have to live somewhere to belong there? What is the definition of an indigenous? And unless you're Athenian, you're not autochthonous. So you came from I mean, somewhere. well, Thebans... The Theban elite oh, were also. Oh, that's right. The Spartoi. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> supposedly. Yeah. And supposedly the Ethiopians were, yeah. according to the Greeks. They thought the Ethiopians were indigenous. So unless you were born from like the Thebans or the teeth of a dragon. The teeth of a dragon or, or the, the, the thrown away sperm of Hephaestus. <laughs> the yeah. Athenian autochthony myth is my favorite myth of all time because like who tells this as their foundation, right? So your virgin goddess is being pursued one day by Hephaestus because he saw her without her armor on. She came down to get a shield fixed and to his armory, and he decides to chase her. And of course, he's got his broken foot because he got tossed off of Olympus. And so he's hobbling behind her and he can't catch up. And he gets so excited when he gets close that he prematurely ejaculates onto her leg. And then she, in disgust, grabs a piece of cotton, wipes it off and throws it on the ground. And that generates the first Athenian. How is that your, <laughs> your, your national origin myth? There's another there's another moral in there. <laughs> right. Lusty sexual ray drive sort yeah, of thing. But also yeah. it's like he couldn't even do it right and she rejected him and it's the funniest story. All divine semen is good semen. So it Well it, it reminds me of my favorite scene from uh, Legally Blonde. So when she's in the classroom and the, the case that they're presented with is that the guy he's a sperm donor and he's trying to say that he should have visitation rights. Uh, of the child because he's obsessed with the woman uh, who's yeah, having yeah. the child. And so they're arguing, yeah, but, you know, he gave the sperm. And, and she says, like, does he want to go visit all the children? You know, is every sperm sacred? Like, you know, for that matter, she says, like, every time he ejaculated and not inside of a woman, that could be considered abortion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, of course, this is, in fact, a extremist Christian view on masturbation, that it's a form of abortion. 
So, I mean, in addition to making you blind, you're also <laughs> killing babies. So, you know, this idea that the way that these modern cultures and we ourselves, without even knowing it, have adopted Nazi ideas is kind of terrifying. It definitely is. Uh, <laughs> you don't really learn about it. And people don't know why they do the things that they do. And that's one of the things I got super interested in the ancient world because I was always wondering, like, why are the roots of the things that we do? And the more you look back on it, it's just like... Some things never really change. It's disheartening, but it's also, it makes you see perspective on some things yeah. too. I think also important is that, and I think this is where something like this podcast that you do is really useful and, and why even though I tried for years to not join Twitter, I finally have found that I actually am like being on Twitter, is that there's a huge gap. I mean, one of the reasons why these ideas perpetuate and why these ideas continue to be espoused and people think they're true is because there's a huge gap between what's happening with researchers and how public opinion works, right? It takes a long time for public opinion to shift on things, right? Things get embedded. And this is where monuments and public art are so important. This is why I wanted to do this class. And why things like the debate around Silent Sam and these other Confederate monuments is so important is that when you make something concrete like that and put it there, it embeds itself as the driver for the narrative. And it's hard to remember a time before that was the narrative. Mm -hmm. And so you think that's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter how many scholars write articles or write books showing that this is not how race worked. You know, we can't say that race today as it is manifested is a universal thing. It's a manifestation of an attempt to define people, right? That it's not natural because they don't want to hear it because they've grown up always knowing that this is how it is. And so there's a gap somewhere in there. And how do you bridge that gap? And how do you get someone like you who's like, well, I learned that, you know, the Dorian invasion was real. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, crap, the Dorian invasion's not real. But you have to be open to that moment. How do you find the opportunities when, you know, there's somebody who's in the field as well saying, no, 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 the Dorian invasion is real. And who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe me, you know, a young woman, or are you going to believe Donald Kagan? And it depends on what you think of women <laughs> on one hand. It also has to do with whether you believe that people who teach at Ivy League institutions versus small liberal arts colleges, Ivy League professors are inherently better somehow by their virtue of being there as opposed to just being inherently privileged versus mm -hmm. others, or that that's where everybody wants to teach. I don't ever want to teach at Harvard or Yale or these places. I enjoy what I do here, and I have a lot of flexibility and freedom that I have here that I would never have mm -hmm. at one of these institutions. So, you know, why would I want to do that? Not everybody wants to be that person. But the media narrative and the public narrative always is that, well, if you're at one of these big research institutions, you're de facto a genius. When in fact, you could be a massive ideologue and mostly mediocre, but you got by on the fact that you went to Harvard and then you went to Yale. And so Chicago's going to hire you. <laughs> this is why uh, I think it's very important that um, a lot of academics write articles that are now showing up in popular media. There's an effort. I mean, we still haven't gotten back to the good old days when classicists like Momsen, right? He was like a rock star in Europe. He was like an advisor to Bismarck and won the Nobel Prize. Like, I mean. <laughs> I don't know right? if we'll ever get to that. Though. Right. I mean, Momsen <laughs> was like a massive asshole apparently but i mean when you are like one of the great stars of uh, on the world stage of course you're gonna have an ego and with that hair i don't know if you know what momson looks like look him up he's really scary looking he intimidates you into doing your roman history <laughs> we need that. He, he's scary <laughs> but there is this thing right where i do think that more scholars 
I think the culture wars of the late 80s and the early 90s sort of scarred people, <laughs> a lot of people. Um, classics didn't come out of it well. We could have come out of it better. That was when the Black Athena debates happened, when Martin Banal mm -hmm. um, wrote Black Athena. And there were many people in our field who did not respond well to it. Mary Lefkowitz has published numerous responses that were highly problematic, um, trying to defend the old guards. Like, there's nothing actually wrong with saying that, yes, the Greeks borrowed lots of things from Africa. And yes, Egypt is an indigenous African civilization. And yes, that many of the people in Egypt in antiquity are people that we would today classify as black. But they couldn't do that. And they couldn't see that our failure to acknowledge those simple things was, in fact, a product of racism and white supremacy embedded into our field, right? This idea that these civilizations all have to be run by white people or they couldn't have actually existed. And so we didn't necessarily come out very well from that debate. <laughs> I see it all the time. I didn't know how hot topic issues or the type of groups that are on the fringes of classics were until I started the podcast and I started getting it on social media. And then you see people from one end of the spectrum who are white supremacists all the way to the other end of the spectrum who worship Bernal. And they're like, the Greeks made up everything. And it's like, no, it's it's in the middle. They borrowed and it's fine. The Egyptians borrowed things from the Greeks too. It's... The Egyptians borrowed things from the Persians and yeah. Persians borrowed things from the yeah. Egyptians. And like... everybody borrowed things from everybody because it's you know it's a pond right we talk about mm -hmm. you know it's an enclosed network where everybody's moving back and forth and the greeks are youngins compared mm -hmm. to some of the near eastern powers and to egypt but that doesn't mean they didn't do anything they took things and made it different you know they did not in fact invent philosophy mm -hmm. <laughs> they did not in fact invent you know certain types of mathematics but they did something different that is what has come down one of my favorite moments from the American School summer program was we were at the Areopagus and the person who was leading us said, just imagine, you know, the most important vote in all of Western civilization took place here. Not the Areopagus, we were at the Panix. Here at the Panix, when Themistocles argued that they should build 300 ships with the money from Lorium instead, you know, if they hadn't done that, then there would be no philosophy and there would be no, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like... Actually, philosophy began with the Greeks living under the Persian Empire. So I'm not really sure how you could say that we wouldn't have any philosophy. Miletus yeah. was right there at that corner of the turn where it was like the intersection where yeah. things going west, east. I like, mean, historiography, I right? If Herodotus and Hecateus are the fathers of historiography, they're both from Ionia. Yeah. So I said this to the speaker. I said, well, you know, I don't think that's really right. And he's like, well, I'm exaggerating, you know, but we can do, you know, fun hypothetical. And I said, well, I don't mind a hypothetical as long as the hypothetical doesn't serve a political purpose mm -hmm. and doesn't like push an agenda of somehow, you know, the Greek miracle. Every tour guide that I've been to in Greece, you always stop in Thermopylae and see the, the modern statues and it's oh like, my God. this is the past. The modern yeah. statues are, you know, I mean, if some Greeks are concerned about the fact that, you know, Nazis and things have usurped their culture, they didn't do themselves any favors when they built the sculptures that they did at Thermopylae. But that was also part of a very specific political agenda by mm. the government at the time. Was this in the early 1900s or was this? No, this is like 60s or 70s. I can't oh, remember. Oh, so it's more, it's more recent. 50s maybe. Okay. It's more recent. And, you know, you can tell too based on the sculptural style. It's got that fascist look to it. The 60s and 70s is when Athens really, really boomed, right? And yeah. Then, like, so as Athens took off, the modern country of Greece started to take off again. 
Yeah, you see a lot of building up of monuments and sites. So what is like the modern 2018 or the past decade or so, what white supremacist groups or nationalism using classics, appropriating classics, whether rightfully, as you pointed out, or wrongfully to reach their agenda? What's the new wave, I suppose? I think the two most well-known groups, Identity Europa or Evropa, as we like to call them, because they use that V for the U. (laughs) They are the ones who have been going around using the posters with the Paolo Belvedere and and the David by Michelangelo for their posters to sort of promote themselves, like, you know, reclaim your heritage, defend your heritage, as if that heritage is these white marble statues. And so that's sort of one of the rounds. The other group, it's now split into two groups. It's trying to pretend that it's not the same group, was the American Vanguard group, which used to use the website bloodandsoil.org. A member of that group is the one that killed Heather Heyer with the car at Charlottesville. And so in order to prevent their deplatforming, American Vanguard supposedly split it off and now it's National Vanguard uh, and they use the same website. But they have this whole big thing on their website about looking to Rome and how they need a new Caesar to arise. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about these groups is that they are very much anti-democratic and pro-authoritarian. So they're not really trying to hide if you're using bloodandsoil.org. Anyway, you're not trying to hide your Nazi connections. The irony, of course, is that they're all, you know, descendants from immigrants, but they claim the soil as their own. And I always crack up about that because, you know, the West Coast was, they're like, oh, all these Mexican immigrants. Well, that all used to be part of Mexico. So we're like in their territory. It was part of Mexico longer than it was since being part of the United States today. But still, like somehow it's it's our country um, and we need to build a wall along it. But their idea is that their blood for the battles that they fought to take this land has saturated the land with their blood, therefore making them one with the soil. So it's a sort of different way of conceptualizing autochthony. <laughs> but, like but, a- it's a, but it's but it's this is this is the other big group that's using this idea. Tacitus's Germania is a big text for them, but also the idea of trying to find an Augustus or a Caesar who can lead them into a new cleanly white empire. <laughs> Sounds like very fine people on both sides. On both sides, yeah, they're very fine people. But those are the sort of primary ones that we see. They have really slick internet presences. Their websites are like really slick. We pulled them up in class the other day and the students were like, oh, this looks like really professional. That's a key in a lot of propaganda stuff. You see it with ISIS too. Yeah. You see it with a lot of these type of groups. They have very large online presence and they're very well into that. And then people who are trying to combat them as a group aren't. They yeah, are we're, not as or, we're not as yeah. organized as a group, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're not all getting together. I mean, it, it, I think it really took a lot for the SCS, the Society for Classical Studies, our national organization to even acknowledge that this was a problem. And I thought that was a good first step. We're still trying to get them to, you know, actually come up with real mechanisms of support for people in the field who are attacked just for doing our job, right? You shouldn't say, hey, ancient sculptures were painted and then get attacked (laughs) for it by white supremacists. But the thing I really worry about with these groups in particular and the dialogue that we have had as a field around these new white supremacist groups and the sort of rise is that there's a lot of racism in the field with the sort of Western Civ Foundation stuff and just the way we treat faculty of color in the field, the lack of it and the lack of welcomeness that people of color feel in our field. So that's kind of an issue. It's like, how can you attack a problem if you are the perpetrators of said problem? Yes. And so I think there's a move in the field. Like A lot of people who are probably what you might call soft white supremacists feel like they can be woke by attacking, you know, the more extreme versions 
the stuff that's kind of ridiculous that, you know, no, there's, these are not Nordics, right? They can look at these sort of extreme versions and they can attack them and then feel better about themselves and ignore the sort of everyday racism that inhabits our field. And medieval studies has a similar problem, I think. I see it all the time. And it was very disheartening when I started getting a big, huge social media presence. And not only do you see fringe troll people, but you also yeah. see people who in their bios, they could be lying, say I have a master's or PhD in classics. And then you see them just spouting off like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes worse for me is when someone who I like this person, right? Mm-hmm. I interact with them online and they have a university position or they're a grad student somewhere and they don't even realize when they're actually denigrating their colleagues in the field of color. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite things that's happening right now, and I bring up Egypt, I'm not an expert in um, ancient Egypt and Egyptology by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been following some debates online recently and I've been trying to educate myself about some of this. But these scholars, you know, white scholars on the one hand will say, well, Egyptians, they're not black. They weren't African. They were Egyptians. Egyptians were just Egyptians. We can't call them Africans. That's a modern category. And I'm like, Egyptian's a Greek word. They didn't call themselves Egyptians. African is a Latin word, right? It was a Roman province. Like, you can't use that as an argument to avoid the question of, was Egypt an African culture? So there's something else going on, this refusal to acknowledge, you know, that Egypt was an African culture or that the Persians were, you know, an indigenous Iranian culture mm-hmm. <laughs> or that the Greeks had foreigners all over it and weren't pure Greeks. There are other things going on that maybe people aren't even cognizant of. They've imbibed them and they've been taught these things. And then they've been taught that this is the way you're supposed to talk about it in order to keep yourself out of the contemporary political fray. Mm-hmm. And this goes back again to this UNESCO 1950 statement and this idea that we're going to talk about ethnicity and we're not going to talk about race. But then what we've done is we've seeded the entire conversation about race to people who are openly racist. Mm -hmm. And then when you try and bring back that conversation, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But then we're using this language that is so alien to people outside of the field or outside of anthropology, even because we're borrowing anthropological models. But even anthropologists now are saying, hey, you know, we were wrong maybe to not address race. We've allowed racism itself to flourish Mm -hmm. by not doing so. Do we then all go and say, I mean, because there are a lot of different ways to come at this problem. One of the ways is to say, okay, so people who lived in North Africa and antiquity by our modern categorization would have been black. And people who lived in Germany, you know, the Gauls, they would have counted as white. So we can use these categories to talk about the ancient world. We talk about blackness and potentially talk about whiteness. That one's a little bit more sketchy because women also categorize as white in ancient discourse and people with diseases. (laughs) It doesn't play fully. You know, can you then apply those modern categories? So one way of doing it is to apply the modern categories and talk about race that way. And then you reserve ethnicity purely for like cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And you sort of let the language of skin color invade the ancient world. Another way is to actually look for racialist structures, things like systems of oppression and exclusion, things that are using descent and culture and things as ways to categorize and suppress other groups and create hierarchies. Or you can just say what most people have done is, well, we're just going to use the word ethnicity for everything and we'll pretend race doesn't happen, (laughs) right? So there are different ways to get at it, but all of them have problems. I just am glad that we're actually starting to have this conversation again because the, the disappointing moments when someone is spouting something that we've always been taught and they're using this language that we've always been taught and they're speaking at odds with their colleagues, they're not even recognizing that they're saying things that could be offensive to people of color who are interested in our field and they're not connecting to the public because this is just 
not a language that the public understands or uses. It's out of the realm of the popular. So, you know, those are some of the things we have to battle with. It's not just extreme groups. The extreme groups in some ways are easier. It's easier to talk about, you know, national vanguard as a bunch of lunatics than it is to talk about how, well, you know, the person who taught me Greek history, I think they got a lot of things wrong. And I actually have come to the realization that the whole way we frame our field is racist. <laughs> like, can we, you know, that's a lot harder conversation to have. But since the way we frame our field is mostly manufactured in the 19th century, we got to have that conversation. For Even example, our dictionary, right? Our dictionaries are sexist and racist. Yeah, and the words and, and then people spout off you're racist for wanting new translations. Yeah. It's like Or like you have these people who it's like they just fixate on the word xanthus, right? Well, Achilles had blonde hair. No, he had xanthus hair. We're not really sure what it was. <laughs> you know, then that one line out of like 24,000 words or whatever <laughs> of lines. So we now have to have Achilles, who's not even probably a real person, must be blonde. That's the thing that kills me about the whole black Achilles thing was they got so angry. And it's just like, it is a myth. <laughs> I know. I'm like, first off, Achilles, okay, Achilles probably wasn't black. Did he show up on a couple of vases black? Sure. But he also probably wasn't like blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, Northern European dude either. He looked like none of these things. And it doesn't really matter what he looked like because he's not real. Even in the ancient world, the people who wrote the myths themselves changed whatever they wanted to yeah. to fit the yeah. audience they were telling. Well, of course, to my favorite part reason. is in ancient performances, every role was played by a man. So when we're talking about performance, this idea that this is part of a bigger issue, and I'll probably get myself in trouble with some people with this one, though, is that this idea that people who have an identity have to perform an identity, that is coming back to bite people who want to have higher levels of representation. You know, yes, we don't want to whitewash stories so that everybody becomes white in the stories, or, you know, it would be great to give opportunities for disabled actors to play disabled characters, but then that same rhetoric is turned back on us. You don't want to pigeonhole people into roles, too. You don't want to pigeonhole people into roles, like, too. Like, even non-myth, like someone who is in a story is written as black has to be a black person or, or, a or that that's white has to be a white person, it's, right? It doesn't have to be a white person. And this is a debate that's happening in theater right now. They went to the whole issue of colorblind casting, mm -hmm. right? Colorblind casting was happening for a long time. And then you end up with things like with Hamilton, where they wanted to cast a really diverse cast. So they preferred non-whites. But there's a, a review of the play was written in The Public Historian that basically argues that, yeah, but then you actually erase the problem of black slavery from the whole story, right? It's a double-edged sword, mm -hmm. right? So now they're moving back to, to race conscious. But just because you want to do race conscious and you want your shows to be inclusive of people of different races and people of different, you know, people with disabilities and, and being shown doesn't mean that they have to be exactly as they're written in a former literary version. Like if you're converting something from a poem it's an into adaptation. a script, it's, it's an adaptation. It should be whatever it wants to be. The directors are doing essentially what like ancient playwrights did. They yeah. took myths and they, they're just adapting it and it doesn't have to be one for one. It doesn't have to be an exact copy. And yeah. that's well, one of the things about the Troy Fall of a City that I found was interesting too, though, is that they claimed that diversity was at the heart of what they were doing, and yet they only cast Black UK or Nigerian actors, and that counted as diversity. There's nobody from other demographics. Like, why aren't there any people who are Middle Eastern? You know, no Mina people. Mm -hmm. There's no Asians. Like, if it's that flexible, then why not have other demographics mm -hmm. in? Because that would actually be diverse, as opposed to I'm going to make this a black and white diversity. Yeah, which I did find somewhat problematic. 
because it just reifies this idea. And that's what these ancient DNA things do too, is they just reify this idea that there's only black and white in the world. And then there's other things who are either, you know, adjacent to black or adjacent to white. And they don't show up in any of these <laughs> and they don't show popular. Up. <laughs> yeah. Birthday. I mean, why aren't we yeah. having people who are from the Middle East and India in our ancient shows? Because they existed in the world of the ancient Mediterranean as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much more prominently than many others. I told you the story before. I, when I took graduate courses, I was shocked that they were learning Greek and Latin in Southeast Asian countries because like it was never something that I had learned. Like I just thought it was just American, European, Canadian thing because I had never seen it before. They've learned Latin and Greek all over the world. And I'm like, this is awesome. I was really shocked when I got to college and realized that people learned Latin or Greek in high school. Like, I thought, <laughs> yeah, that too. I was like, hey, how you can do that? Because <laughs> you know? I didn't go to school districts that were, you know, wealthy school districts or, <laughs> or something like that. I mean, I, I'm still shocked that with my podcast, I'm in 175 countries out of 195. <laughs> 15 of those countries I don't think I'll ever get into because of internet's blocked off. Right, right, right. <laughs> There's a few holdouts, but it's like people like Greek history all around the world. And it just blew my mind but because you, I was yeah. naive to But it. this is the thing I think is that we have to remember is that people like Greek history for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why people can access Greek history, if we try to represent Greek history close to what it was actually like in the ancient world, that means that Greek history isn't just Greek history. Greek history, it's the history of Greeks interacting with a whole big mm -hmm. swath of the world, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not just Greek history, but it's other people's histories too. And sometimes the Greeks are the minor players in the mm -hmm. game, and sometimes they're more major players in the game. But Greek history isn't just about Greeks, and it's certainly not about Greeks as always winning everything and being the best. Yeah. So I think that if we actually try to more accurately represent the ancient Mediterranean and where the Greeks went in the ancient world and who they engaged with and what they thought, and actually give ourselves the narratives of what other people thought about the Greeks more readily than I think that we would actually end up with a closer view of them. And I think it's more people can actually mm -hmm. enjoy and access Greek history. So that was kind of my thought process when I started. I talked with a few people about this and I was like, I'm going to do Herodotus. Right, right, right. Like if I come into contact in the Greek story with another civilization, then I will go through their entire backstory right. to bring it up to do space. You, do you get complaints about that? Yes, yes all the time. <laughs> when, People are like, this is not Greek history. Why did you just spend eight episodes on the Persians? It's like, because you can't just say they fought the war with the Persians without understanding, like going back to the ninth century and talking about the yeah. steppe tribes that came down and through. And it's my podcast. I'll do what I you want. You can do it. I'll do what I want. And I, I find this fascinating. Just like I spent two episodes doing the back history of the Carthaginians because you can't talk about Greek and Punic war without talking about them. And just like I'll eventually do the same with the Etruscans when I get to Magna Graeca. Yeah, well, but, but right. I and mean, think about this, right? While the Athenians and Spartans were over fighting in uh, against the Persians, you know, the Greeks in Sicily mm -hmm. were fighting against Carthage. And Etruscan. And And I would go even further into other civilizations if we just had the information that we well, could but if you do, to make it listenable. <laughs> if you ever make it to Alexander, I mean, you're going, oh, yeah. you know, right? I could, go, I could go all the way to India and talk <laughs> you about the Indo-Greeks and all that sort of but, stuff. But, you know, there's so much ancient Indian culture that we get short shrifted in our field that when Alexander encounters it, He's an observer to this highly developed, wonderful world um, mm -hmm. that he enters into, and it fundamentally changes Greekness in the East. 
I don't talk too much about the Egyptians except in like the 7th and 6th century simply because there is another podcast, The History mm. of Egypt by Dominic Perry, who does a fantastic job. In also, you just like, I would talk about the Egyptians here, but why don't you just go listen to this yeah, episode? Yeah, there's no point in remaking the just, wheel. Just go to this episode. And just, then... like, just like <laughs> when I get to Rome, I'll bring the Romans up, but I'm not going to cover their political yeah. history. Uh, that's been well done. I'll probably it's, do it's a bunch of cultural stuff. Cro- yeah. Cross-referencing. Yeah, it'll, it'll just be a bunch of cultural stuff that I felt didn't get thoroughly done in other places and then it'll basically be from like purest onwards right 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 make sure you tell how he dies <laughs> and it's yeah it's just like you can't just jump into a story with another civilization and expect people to understand why these are important like why were the persians important you can't just be like because when you do that well, then, no, then it has but, that but but here's your problem right yeah. the reason why they don't want to hear about the persians is because the only reason the persians are important is because they lost to the greeks yeah. right i mean this and they is, have an eight foot tall king yeah so so my <laughs> colleague um professor goldman is teaching greek history this semester and on the first day of class, he had his students listen to the Kwame Appiah Wreath Lectures podcast on culture. And then they listened to Kagan right afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the students were like, oh, my God, Kagan is like so they, – they said it was like the first 10 to 15 minutes after you've listened to Appiah talk is so cringeworthy because the students are like, so this seems to be willful ignorance of mm-hmm. other cultures. So you mentioned Kagan, and that's actually how I got into Greek history when it was I Tunes You. And looking back on it, it's just like, whoa. Well, but this, you know, when he but retired, I, I, without it, I wouldn't have yeah. gotten. But into when he it. retired, he actually said that he's, you know, he's like, I still believe that, you know, that no other civilization has contributed anything, you know. But so the students were able just by listening to two different perspectives and being people who come from different cultural backgrounds, yeah. they were able to say, wow, you know. He's missing this whole world and he's doing it intentionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and there are people who prefer it that way. Right. Yeah, isolation. You don't have to hear other people's perspectives. It's like my way or the highway sort of thing. It's um, how I work on Twitter. Yeah. It's the only way I can survive Twitter. I often don't engage on Twitter. Yeah. There's no room for nuance. I just don't. I don't respond to things. <laughs> I will send GIFs or GIFs, however you want to say it. I guess it's GIFs. Uh, no, I, was, I think the guy who invented them said it's GIF. Oh, well, whatever it is. I usually send those back with a smart-ass remark. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll meet the person. Yeah. I share a block list with a colleague in the UK. She's the one who convinced me to join Twitter. But she and I share a block list in this thing called Block Together. Mm-hmm. She works on the Holocaust and memory. She's a Jewish theology mm-hmm. professor. And she was getting – some guy was like screenshotting her posts and then posting them all over to these anti-Semitic websites trying to get people to attack oh. her. And Twitter wouldn't take them down, of course, because Twitter is like that. But she did discover a tool which allows you, if you just block one person, you also block all their followers. And so our block list shot up by like 12,000 people (laughs) in one day. (laughs) So that's a great strategy. (laughs) But I don't do that because part of me likes frustrating people. And as bad as it sounds, like I like people like if you're going to be a douche on the Internet and and you're going to troll me and con me all the time, I like that you're screaming and shouting into the void and you never get an answer. Yeah, I mean, I like that on the one hand. But on the other hand, I have a very small mute list. I tend to mute people who already know I exist in the world and I tend to block people who don't know me. I tend to block people who I just I didn't actually engage. I refrained from engaging. And I'm like, no. That's dumb. (laughs) No. And I tend to mute people who I have engaged with. And then I feel like, well, I'll mute them now. And then maybe in six months, I'll block them and they won't notice. 
<laughs> or something like that. But it's also a different world to inhabit when you are a woman. Yeah. And also, I think, honestly, we all use Twitter for different things. And I'm I share not- memes. Yeah, I mean, I share pictures of my cats, right? I'm live tweeting the reading of Chaputat's book on uh, Greeks, Romans, and Germans on the Nazi appropriation. As I've been reading it, I've been live tweeting my reading of it. I'm in chapter six now. The, the thread is like that 200. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense what's going on. I, just, I thought you just go on random thought blurbs. No, no, now my Twitter feed makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah, now, yeah, uh, now it makes sense. <laughs> it's into like to 240th tweet or something. I'm going to have to get a thread unroll one yeah. of these days. Um, I finally started my first thread. I didn't realize that that was like a cool thing until like, <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. Well, no, so I, I use Twitter differently. I, I'm not out to get you know, lots of followers. I post up what I blog on there and I'm happy when people read my blog posts, but it's not why I'm on Twitter. So blocking people to me, I'm not missing out on anything if I, you know, don't talk to that, you know, racist asshole. But I'm of the live journal generation, right? I'm a little bit older than you. And so I was a live journal user when it first started. And I actually was the administrator for one of the largest academic communities on live journal called Academics Anon. And so I was taking Trolling 101, (laughs) you know, 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago now. So my tolerance level is gone. It's gone. And I don't know people anything. Mine was pretty bad the first year that I was on there. I took criticism pretty bad and when people were right. nasty. And then after a while, it's just kind of like And many of them off. not even human beings, right? Yeah, it's yeah. bots, right? <laughs> and then I kind of – I don't want to say I got a thick skin, but I just realized that this was pointless. Like, but I, I think the, the – move on. I think there's something to be said for the fact that mm-hmm. – I, I think there's a lot of people – I mean, I sort of joked about this on the Race and Racism in the Classics in Medieval World podcast – that people are surprised that white supremacists have a huge investment in classics – like that, how are they surprised about this? I find it hilarious that people were shocked that this started happening, that they would be getting pushback when we were promoting more contemporary scholarship, that they were going to get pushed back from white supremacists. I was like, well, how are you surprised? This is a thing that has existed in the world for decades. You know, this is what the culture wars in the late 80s, early 90s was partially about. So I don't understand how people can not expect it. They act as if white supremacy was gone until Trump got elected, and that's not true. You know, the fact that Ruby Bridges, she just turned 64, right, the little girl who helped integrate the school systems, she's younger than my parents. Of course there are people out there who grew up in worlds where they don't want integration, and they still don't want it, and they've taught their children to not want it. So I'm less surprised, I think, than a lot of people that classics has a white supremacy problem. I was very surprised. That's because I, <laughs> uh, but that's because I was naive and I didn't even come to classics until a decade ago. Yeah, and I didn't even know it was a thing until a decade ago. Yeah, and that was the thing too. Like, I got to college. I started college in 1992, right? So it's like sort of the tail end of, of the culture wars. But I went to a, a college at UCSD that was pretty invested in it, really active in it, and so. I sort of got the tail end of the situation. So you started classics. So the tail the end of the Black of the Athena. Thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know what it was. I wanted to. It's I, like Bane. I grew up in controversy. I, <laughs> but I was I, born in this. <laughs> but I, I, I know as a first gen college student, my parents, my dad was a Marine, right? It's like they don't, we don't know anything about classics, like whatever. And my stepmother is Japanese, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's just this a different world. But I loved history and I had read Simon Shama's Citizens and I had read a lot of books on Tudor and Stuart England and Queen Elizabeth I, after whom my child is named, by the way, <laughs> um, she knew Greek and Latin and Hebrew and I was going to learn them too. 
So I went to learn Greek simply because I had a language requirement and Queen Elizabeth I knew that language. And so I was going to learn it, right? It had nothing to do with classics. I didn't even realize, you know, that Homer existed. I knew kind of, I think we had read some in 10th grade or 9th grade or something, but I didn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) You guys need to know Greek. Yeah. I was like, I need to know all these languages because- Did you learn Hebrew? No, because I hated the Hebrew professor. Uh I bought the book and went to the first class and I was like, I'm out of here. I did take a bunch of courses in Judaic studies. So, you know, there was that. (laughs) I always wanted to learn Old Persian. I want to learn Old Persian too. And I want to learn Akkadian. And it's really hard to get into programs to do these things when you're not a grad student anymore. I'm just going to have to be like, you know, contact some people over at Penn and just be like, can I just like sit in on this class this semester or Chicago and Mm -hmm. go crash a class for a semester? See if they'll let me. I'll tell them I'll be good and I'll do all my assignments. I'll be the ideal student. (laughs) Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I look forward to when this gets up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. (laughs) Thank you.